money, deals, tribal knowledge, resources, training, coaching, partnering. We are Texas's largest real estate investor association at texasstarterkit.com. My name is Shanoa Grove. Welcome to the show. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the Texas RIAs. My name is Phil Grove. Uh, oh, let's start the recording. There we go. Uh, my name is Phil Grove. I'm one of the co-founders of the Texas RIAs. The Texas RIAs is the largest network of real estate investor associations across the great state of Texas. Uh, we've been doing this since 2003, so it is a vast organization with over 100,000 members, participants, and attendees going back for over 20 years. The Texas RIAs provides resources for Texas real estate investors. We're the only organization that lobbies on behalf of Texas real estate investors to make sure the laws are good for real estate investors. We have over a thousand private money lenders. We have a vast network of people buying and selling and wholesaling. We provide market updates, training, and more. And we're going to do some of that tonight in our meeting including a market update. So we're going to go through a detailed market update and tell you what's going on in the market. So in general, let's start this conversation off. In general, what would you say uh, the story is when it comes to real estate? What's, what's the story right now? Well, what's, what's, what's going on in the market over the last year? Interest rates, interest rates. Okay, so interest rates uh, have changed. Uh, who would say we have high interest rates? Raise your hand if you would think we have high interest rates. Okay, who thinks we have low interest rates? Who thinks we have low interest rates? Look at that. We have a mostly high. Now, for some reason, this side of the room did not vote. Okay, so we're going to give you another chance. You're all here, right? Who thinks we have high interest rates? Raise your hand if you have high interest rates. Who thinks we have low interest rates? Low interest rates. Okay. Um, I would say it depends. My opinion, my perspective is we have normal interest rates. That's what I believe. I've been doing this since 2003. Most of my rental properties 20 years ago that I still own, I got was six and a half to seven and a half percent mortgages. That's, they still have that. I mean, that's just, that's called normal, folks. That's called normal. Okay. Now in 1981, interest rates on mortgages got all the way up to 18 percent. 18% on a mortgage. If you were investing since 1981 and you saw you could get interest rates at seven and a half percent, you'd be like, holy crap, this is the cheapest mortgage ever. So who thinks interest rates are high? Well, if you've only been kind of paying attention or if you bought a house in the last two or three years, you're like, oh, well, it was three or four percent. Now it's, uh, you know, seven or whatever percent. Uh, so it's perspective. It is perspective. Um, three, four, or five percent mortgages, that's not normal. Four percent mortgages, three percent mortgages, that has not happened in your prior life or your parents' life. Okay. I seriously doubt that will ever happen again for the rest of your life or the rest of your children's lives. Could it? Anything could happen. I have no idea. But there's a million things that say it won't. I can't think of anything that says it will. That was a freakishly abnormal, once in a hundred year phenomena. You were there, you lived through it, you saw it. Will it ever happen again? I doubt it. It might, I don't know. I can't predict the future and I don't claim to. 
Uh, although we'll give you some forecasts, but um, we don't know. Uh, but I would say perspective-wise, I would say interest rates are normal. And honestly, personally, I like normal. Uh, I don't like abnormal. You know, the problem with the interest rates a couple of years ago, especially like in commercial real estate, there were all these deals in commercial real estate. I do commercial, I do residential. And the problem is, first of all, it's hyper-competitive. So when it's hyper-competitive, people do deals they shouldn't do because it's competitive and they want to do a deal, so they get motivated and they do a deal they shouldn't do. And some of these deals were put together in a way that the only way these deals could possibly be working is if they could get some ridiculous 3.5% mortgage. And they got a 3.5% mortgage and they made these deals that were really not very good deals work. But commercial loans are not like residential loans. Residential loans are 30-year loans. Commercial loans are typically like five-year loans. So those loans go, come due after just a few years, right? And now all those loans are coming due. And those same deals, right, that only works, right, in this freakishly abnormal world of 3.5% mortgages, now they don't work anymore. So the big word in commercial is cash call, right? They're having to raise more money to pay down those debts, uh, loans, to keep those deals from going under. So there's a lot of turmoil in commercial. I would say commercial, the best time to get in commercial is now, because now things are normal. You get deals that are not stupid deals, and with normal financing, you make things work in this market, right, you're going to have a good deal that actually works in a normal market. So I actually uh, like that. Um, but that's a perspective, right? Interest rates are normal. It's just my perspective uh, from being a 20-year real estate investor. Now, let's talk about interest rates. When interest rates go up, what happens to home prices? Who thinks when interest rates go up, home prices go down? Who thinks when interest rates go up, home prices go down? Who thinks when interest rates go up, home prices go up? Yeah, look at that. We got a mix, huh? And a lot of you guys over here are still not voting, so I'm watching you guys. And I would say that when interest rates go up, home prices do this. <laughs> they go up and they go down. There's both upward and downward forces on real estate. Okay, like I'll give you an example. Why are interest rates higher? Right, because we had something happen. What else happened? We had something called what? Called inflation. What's another word for inflation? Appreciation. Yeah, I love inflation. It's always offensive to me when they talk, oh, inflation is bad. Infl I, I disagree. All my money's in real estate, so I love inflation. I just, I just call it appreciation. Right? It's just a different word. Appreciation means prices are going up. Right? So that's an up, up thing. We also have uh, uh, money. It's a little harder to get. Uh, and because it's a little harder to get, you know, in, in, in 2000 and uh, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, we had subprime lending. Subprime lending. Anybody could get a loan. If, if you wanted to get a loan in 2007, you walked into a bank and you said, I want a loan. And somebody would walk up, they'd hold a mirror under your nose. If they saw fog, you got a loan. That was the loan application process. <laughs> the stated income loan. It was the dumbest idea ever. They literally would say, can you pay us back? Yes, I can. Loan approved. I mean, it's like no doc loan. It was stupid. And surprise, surprise, in 2008, <laughs> the banks went bankrupt. You know, they all went under. And, you know, the government actually changed the definition of bankruptcy. Did you know that? All that mark-to-market -market stuff. But they went bankrupt. By any real accounting, they went bankrupt. But they were too big to fail, so they got bailed out. But what happened up until 2008 uh, is that money was easy. Anybody could get loans. You, 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 all you had to do is ask, and you could borrow all the money you want. And so, consequently, builders 
built houses off into the horizon in every direction. They just built bazillions of houses, tons of supply. Okay, and then what did they do with all that stuff? They, they just sold it to everybody because everybody could get a loan. Subprime lending, everybody could get a loan, everybody could build, build a house. So we built bazillions of houses and then we gave away practically free money to everybody. And then in 2008, lending came to a stop. It didn't slow down. It's like the train hit the wall, right? It just stopped. And so all of a sudden, nobody could get a loan, right? But they still had all those houses, right? Incredible supply. And then demand just stopped. And what happened in 2008? Crash, right? The market crashed. They were too big to fail, right? The, the banks got bailed out. And, and, and eventually, they got back into the lending business, right? But all these years later, today, money got cheap, but it never got easy. Money never got easy after, after 2008. Today, what do you have to do to get a loan? Qualify. Fill out a 1,900-page application. Turn over your firstborn, right? Uh, submit your blood samples. A lot. You have to do a lot, right? Uh, you know, and consequently, even though money got cheap for a while there, it never got easy. And because it never got easy, we have not been keeping up with the demand. In fact, on a national basis, did you know that we are in the middle of a housing shortage? Who's heard that? We're in the middle of a housing shortage. Yeah, we don't have enough houses. Nationally, we're about 6 million houses short of the demand rate. Uh, and when you don't have enough supply, right, people keep having babies, everybody needs to live somewhere, uh, and you have a housing shortage, what does that do to home prices? Pushes them up. So there's another push up. So we got some things pushing prices up. Now, at the same time, yeah, interest rates went up. And when interest rates go up, houses become less affordable. They do. And so fewer people can afford the house, right? So you have List less demand, and that pushes prices down. So we have things pushing prices up, and we have things pushing prices down, right? And I'll show you in a minute when you put all that in the blender what's actually happened and what's going to happen next. But uh, this is an interesting chart. This is uh, home prices, median uh, home prices versus interest rates, going all the way back to 1975. So from 1975 to 1981, interest rates on mortgages got all the way up to 18%. Isn't that crazy? And you guys are complaining about seven and a half. Give me a break. Right? And by the way, when interest rates went up, what happened to home prices? Net, they actually went up. And when interest rates came down, what happened to home prices? They actually went up. And when interest rates went up and down, up and down, up and down, what happened to home prices? They went up. Now, there were little bubbles in here, right? So there were some little bubbles in here. But over time, they, they went up. So there's actually not direct correlation between interest rates and home prices. Uh, interest rate does affect the number of houses sold, but it doesn't have as directive effect on the price of houses So because it pushes up and down at the same time. So interest rates have both upward and downward effects on the housing market. And when you put all that in a blender and you spit it out, where are home prices today? And the answer is they are flat. They are pretty much flat as a pancake, flat as, uh, as Houston flat. So, and I'll dive into the different cities, but um, Texas, average price house in Texas, uh, year over year, up 2%. I call that flat. The market actually bottomed out eh, about a quarter ago. It's creeping back up uh, a little bit, depending on which market you're in. Uh, average price is flat. It's not doing anything. Now, the volume's down. 
the volume uh, is uh, down, less buyers, less sellers, so fewer houses being bought and sold. But lately, recently, it's picked up. So something happened about a quarter ago where the market kind of got to a plateau, leveled off, and now it seems to be creeping up again. But overall, I would describe the market as flat. And uh, flat as a pancake, flat as Texas is flat. Let's go into where the different cities are and then where are things going next. So there's different things that drive prices both up and down. Uh, and we'll give you a forecast. But I'm also going to tell you um, the disclaimer. We are not part of the National Board of Realtors. If you ask the National Board of Realtors what's going to happen to home prices in the next year, what will they tell you? And they've said that every year for the last 50 years, right? Oh, it's going to go. They just changed why it's going to go up, but it's always the same forecast. I have no motivation to try to persuade you that prices are going to go up or down or sideways. We have strategies. We're not selling you anything. We're not asking you to invest in anything. I'm not here to try to persuade you of any particular opinion. I'm going to share a bunch of data. We will give you a forecast. But we're going to tell you, you can make money in real estate, up markets, down markets, sideways markets. Sometimes the down markets are the most lucrative for real estate investors. But let's talk about what's driving the market. The first thing is the overall economy is actually pretty good, right? Um, the economy is in a growth cycle, and uh, Texas is growing at 5%, which is a little better than the national uh, cycle. And uh, so that's a, that's, a, that's a good thing, right? When the economy is good, generally that's a, that's a positive influence on, uh, on the housing market. Uh, consumer confidence is actually pretty good. You know, when you ask consumers uh, what their confidence level is, uh, anything over 100 is considered confident, under 100 is considered not confident. We're, we're at about 115 uh, right now. So consumers feel pretty good. They feel like, you know, they got money and they're not too worried at the moment. The unemployment rate's pretty good. That's another positive thing. Uh, anything below 5% is considered really good uh, unemployment numbers. Uh, the U.S. is at 3.7. Texas is at, uh, what is that, uh, 4? I can't quite see that. About 4%. Uh, then we have different things in the uh, different cities. So, so we're about 4%, right, uh, for the uh, unemployment rate. Anything under 5 is good. So the unemployment is pretty good. So that's another positive driver. Job growth, also really good. Uh, we're creating a lot of jobs. Uh, U.S. is growing at 1.7. Texas is leading the U.S. Uh, and growing at 2.6. Uh, the different cities vary a little bit, but strong, strong uh, growth. Uh, so that's good. Stock market is pretty good, right? And, and this has to do with how people feel. If people have their money in a 401k or IRA and they have that money in the stock market or personal money in the stock market and it goes up, they feel richer, right? Wealthier, better off. And yeah, last year, 2023 was a bang up year, right? Ended up really high. So everybody that had money in the stock market felt like, ooh, it's a bear market. I'm sorry, a, a bull market. And, and they feel really strong about that. Uh, now, interest rates, here's a down, right? Interest rates are higher, much higher. And that has reduced the affordability. So there are people that couldn't afford uh, or could have afforded a house before at, at the lower interest rates, but can't afford a house now. Uh, so that's something that's pushing uh, prices down. Now, I will say the smart money believes that interest rates will probably go down this year. The consensus from the economics economists is that it'll probably go down about 1% starting in the summer. We don't know, right? Nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. 
but the forecast is it's going to go down. Some people say it's going to go down a little. Some people say it's going to go down a little more. I don't know anybody saying it's going to go up, right? So the consensus is we're probably going to see a decrease in interest rates. And of course, if the interest rates go down, the affordability goes up, and that will cause some upward impact on uh, house prices. Home price projector, uh, trajectory uh, is flat, right? Market kind of leveled off. Some cities went down a little bit. Some cities just kind of flattened out. Uh, so it's kind of a neutral, right? The market is flat. Uh, this last year was pretty much a flat year. Uh, prior three years, up, 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 and then flat. Closed sales trajectory. Uh, the number of houses sold uh, is down uh, a little bit um, because there's fewer buyers and fewer sellers. Uh, but something really interesting has happened with uh, the houses that are selling. So let's talk about that. The mix is swapped. The mix has changed. Traditionally, if you look at houses for sale selling on the MLS, traditionally two-thirds of the houses that get sold are resale houses and one-third of the houses that get sold are new construction. That's the typical mix. A third new construction, two-thirds resale. Right now, it's inverted. It's swapped, right? Two-thirds of the houses selling right now are new construction. Only one-third are resale. So why is that? Because everybody that either bought a house or refinanced their house in the last three or four years got one of those three or four percent mortgages, right? And they don't want to give it up. So there's a lot of people holding back. They don't want to sell their house, even though normally people sell their house. They're like, oh, well, let's get a bigger, nicer house. Let's sell this one and move up to the nicer one. We got a little money. We made a little money in the stock market. Jobs are doing good. Everything's doing good, but they're not. And the reason they're not is they don't want to give up their 3 or 4% mortgage and have to get a new mortgage that's like 7.5%. So all of that supply is being held back off the market. And of course, when you hold supply off the market, what does that do to home prices? Constricted supply, that's an upward thing, right? Upward thing. Now, it's being, the, the void is made up with new construction. So the new construction is filling the void for all the demand. Uh, but something's happening there too. Uh, money is getting a little harder and a little more expensive. Uh, and because of that, construction is slowing down a little bit. And if construction slows down a little bit, we keep having babies and keep people keep moving to Texas. So at some point that, that supply is going to start to dry up, right? And if that happens, that's another thing that can push prices uh, up. Um, pending sales trajectory. Uh, pending sales are actually tra uh, tracking up. So that's kind of interesting. The market started to pick up about a quarter ago. Uh, active listings, kind of flat. Uh, we're kind of adding more, but we're adding them at a slow pace. So people are really holding back from adding houses onto the marketplace. Again, they probably don't want to give up those mortgages. There's a lot of people kind of on the sidelines. They're waiting for interest rates to come down a little bit so that they can sell their house and move up, right? So there's a little constriction of uh, supply because of that. Uh, months of inventory. Now, in my opinion, this is the number that's the most important number that I look at, months of inventory. What is months of inventory? There's a couple of ways to explain months of inventory, but one way, one easy way to explain it is that if you stopped adding any new houses to the MLS, you just take whatever's for sale and you sell it until the shelves are empty, until there's nothing left. How long would that supply last, right? And um, that's, and that, by the way, that's also the average amount of time it takes to sell a house, right? So how many months of inventory do we have? 
Um, and the historical trend says this. If there's less than six months of inventory, you have a seller's market. If there's more than six months of inventory, you have a buyer's market. If there's right around six months of inventory, you have a neutral market. So six months is considered a neutral market. And if you look at Texas, Texas has 3.4 months of inventory. In other words, Texas is a pretty strong seller's market. Did you know that? Now, this is also perspective. A lot of people are like, well, the market's down. Now, the market's on fire. It's just not a three-alarm fire. It's only a two-alarm fire, right? Now, a few years ago, it was a five-alarm fire, right? You know, now it's just a one-alarm fire, right? I mean, it's still a pretty hot market. It's just not as hot uh, as it was uh, a couple of years ago. But 3.4 months of inventory, that's not considered a lot of inventory. That's considered by any historical standard to be a seller's market. Uh, housing permit trajectory. Uh, are, we, uh, are we building enough houses for all the people that keep having babies and keep moving to Texas? And this, the answer is we're just keeping up with demand. Uh, you know, we should be building a lot more houses uh, but the problem is money's not easy to get. So we're just barely keeping up with the demand. In migration, migration is the ratio of people moving into a city versus moving out of a city. Okay. And for like buy and hold, you always want to go where the people are going to. You want to go where the population is growing because when the population is growing, that means you have growing demand. That's a big force up on home prices. And of course, we have tons of migration here in Texas. Everybody's moving to freaking Texas. I think California has a program where they pay people to move to Texas. I'm not sure exactly how that program works, but yeah, we, we just have a crap load of people moving to Texas. So we have huge uh, migration. Uh, I don't remember, California lost like half a million people and Texas like picked up 2 million people or something like that in the last census, right? I mean, it's like, and all of those California people, and we picked up what, like, four Senate or four uh, house seats and they lost two or something like that. I mean, so yeah, they're all moving here. Uh, construction labor growth. Okay. We got a problem. Our contractors are aging out. Uh, and for some reason we can't get our young people to pick up a hammer. So yeah, the, I don't, I don't remember the number, but like the average general contractor is like 60 years old, like 60. I mean, they're, they're, they're getting old. Right. And, uh, and nobody's, getting into that business. Uh, so they're, they're getting old and they're moving to Miami to sit on a beach, right? And, and it's getting harder and harder uh, to get contractors. Uh, so don't send your kids to college, right? Give them a hammer and teach them. And by the way, they're going to make a lot more money, right? <laughs> you know, I, I remember the, the story where this, uh, you know, neurosurgeon is having a plumber do some plumbing work and the plumber gives him the bill and he's like, holy crap, you know, this, this is a ridiculous bill. This is a kind of a bill a surgeon would, would charge. And the guy's like, yeah, I used to be a surgeon, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, send your kids to contractor school because we need contractors and that's actually making labor prices go up. Uh, so it's, it is, uh, housing uh, building is a lot more expensive. Renovating is a lot more expensive. You know, I remember you know, I used to be able to build a house for 120 a foot, even 100 a foot in some cases. And now it's like 200, 250, you know, it's, every, it's just much, much more expensive. Uh, and then finally, wild cards. Interest rates could go up or down or anything else. We could have a war, the election, who knows? So um, those are the things that are pushing prices up. And those are the things that are pushing prices down. And, um, 
you know, what is your consensus? You know, what do you think? Do you think housing prices are going, who thinks prices are probably going to start to go up? Who would think the housing prices are going to go up? Who thinks prices are going to start to go down? Okay, well, um, I could see a lot of reasons uh, that could cause prices to go up. I can't see much that could make it go down. So, and again, I'm not here to try to persuade you of a particular point of view. That's just how we see the market. So let's go into some of the different cities. Uh, this is a Texas uh, roll up. The average price house in Texas, let's see, is $396,000. Uh, and that's actually uh, up uh, a little bit uh, versus uh, 385 uh, a year ago. Median price is uh, uh, 325,000, which is up a little bit from uh, 319. So prices are up a little bit uh, compared to a year ago. This is months of inventory. Remember months of inventory, three and a half months of inventory. That's a pretty strong market. Now it's not as strong as it was a year ago. A year ago is 2.6 months of inventory. That's a crazy strong market. So we're not crazy strong, but we're still a pretty strong market. Uh, listings are up, right? There's more houses available. That's why the inventory is up because there's just more houses uh, available. Uh, closed sales is up, uh, but not much. Just really a little bit uh, there. But if you look back over the last three years, what happened in the last three years? 2021, prices were up 18% in one year. 2022, up another 10.7%, almost another 11%. 2023 was flat. So it went up, went up more, and then it just kind of flattened out. And that is what has happened over the marketplace. Now, if you bought a house three years ago, you're pretty happy. If you bought a house one year ago, you're like, I haven't, haven't made any money, right? And that's just a perspective it feels like things probably started to pick up a little bit about a quarter ago. And we'll, we'll start to kind of talk about that because the inventory is starting to come down. All right, let's take a look at some of the different cities, starting with Houston. Here we are in Houston. The average price in Houston is 391000 It's actually up 3%. And the median price is 220.5, up another 2%. So the market's up a little bit. Uh, inventory, 3.3 months of inventory. Pretty good market, Houston. Uh, closed sales is actually up. So something happened. It trended down and now it started to trend up. Uh, active listings is up. That's why the inventory is up. Uh, but pending sales are also up. Uh, if you take a leases, lease listing, the number of houses available for lease is down a little bit, basically flat. Lease prices are up. A uh, little fewer people can afford to buy a house, so a little more people are leasing because everybody's got to live somewhere. Uh, so prices are actually up a little bit, uh, and uh, new lease listings are up uh, 12%. Okay, uh, Dallas. The average price house in Dallas is $476,000. Uh, it's up 2%. Median is three eighty-five, up another 1%. So Dallas is also up. And something is going on in Dallas, I'll talk about a little bit. I don't know why, and I don't know if any of you know why, but for some reason, Dallas has always been the bellwether of Texas. I don't know why, but going back 20 years, if you kind of want to know what's going to happen next, you look at Dallas. When Dallas starts to go up, the rest of Texas goes up. When Dallas starts to go down, the rest of Texas goes down. So I don't know why Dallas has always been several months ahead of everybody else. I have no idea. Maybe it's some mix of the economy. I have no idea why. But something's going on in Dallas where inventory is dropping like a rock. It's down to now just two and a half months of inventory. 
So Dallas is back into the three alarm fire uh, in terms of uh, inventory. Sales is up, closed sales is up, uh, active listings is up, but not that much. Uh, at least they're just down 1% basically fat. At least prices are down. They just put some new, a lot of new inventory on the market. Uh, but pending sales are down, but just a little bit. Now, what happened in Dallas over the last uh, three years? In uh, 2021, prices went up 20% in one year. 2022, they went up another 15% in one year. And then 2023, they went up 1%. Basically, they were flat. So Dallas went up a lot, up a lot more, and then it flattened out. And now something over the last quarter, inventory is dropping now. When inventory drops, normally that would be something that will push prices up. So we're going to see uh, where Dallas goes, uh, goes next. And uh, there's certain things uh, that are kind of pre-indicators uh, of where, give you hints of where the market's going to go. I'll give you another example. Um, condominiums. New housing starts. These are things we look at. Uh, we always call condominiums the canary in the coal mine. Condos are the first thing to go. When the market starts to soften, condos are the first thing to go down. They're the last thing to come back. And I'm not saying anything bad about condos. It's just that's where they are, right? And, and so if, like, if condos are hot, if the, hot if, the, if the condo market's hot, you know everything's hot, right? Because it's, it's, you know, if you can sell a condo, you can sell anything. That's the saying. Uh, and um, so that's a, another bellwether, and, and Dallas is a bellwether. Okay, Austin. Let's take a look at Austin. Now, Austin is an outlier, and I'm going to explain why. Uh, but the average price house in Austin, Texas is $553,000. That is not a typo. Uh, it's up 0.4%, basically flat. The median price, 430 down 4.4%. So, uh, yeah. 553 average price house in Austin, Texas. Yeah, we actually did a little research on this, and what we discovered is Austin, a lot of you may not know this, where did the name come from? Uh, it's actually Latin for San Francisco, yeah. Elon Musk moved to Austin, and Apple moved to Austin, and Amazon set up in Austin, all these high-tech companies moved into Austin, and they brought all their you know, multi-hundred thousand dollar uh, a year employees with them, and it caused Austin to just take off like a rocket ship. So how did it take off? Let me show you the outlier. In 2021, that's the outlier. In 2021, houses, house prices in Austin went up 29% in one year. 29% in one year. In 2022, they went up another 10%, and then 2023, down eight. So it went way up up more and then down. Now, perspective, right? If you bought a house in Houston, Dallas went up 30% and it flattened out. If you bought a house in Austin, went up 40, came down 10 and flattened out. Perspective, they all went up 30. It's just, where did they go up? It depends on where you were, right? So what happened in 2021? 2021 was an insane market in Austin, Texas, because in 2021, remember months of inventory, in 2021, Austin had 0.4 months of inventory. That's less than two weeks of inventory. And what was happening in 2021 in Austin is somebody would put a house on the market, they'd get 11 offers in a weekend. One of them got the house, 10 of them did not get the house. So the 10 people that didn't get the house made an offer on a second house. That also got 11 offers. One of them got the house, and 10 of them didn't get the house. 
And after doing this over and over again, the buyers got so mad at the realtors. What do you have to do to buy a house? I need to live here. I need to buy a house. And it was normal, normal practice in 2021 in Austin, Texas, to buy the house for five to up to 10% above appraised value. And if you buy a house above appraised value, you know the bank will not loan you the money to do that. The bank only loans you enough money to buy the house up to the appraised value. Down payment plus loan equals appraised value, not a penny more. If you want to buy a house for more than it's appraised for, you have to bring additional money to the table on top of the down payment. And in 2021, that was the rule in Austin, Texas. So I would argue that it was normal in 2021, that abnormal market, to buy houses at five to 10% above what they were frankly worth or appraised for. And of course that doesn't go on forever and it did not go up forever because once the market settled, it settled down 8%. So perspective, right? If you bought a house in Austin three years ago, you made 30%. If you bought it in Houston, Dallas three years ago, you made 30%. If you bought it one year ago, you lost 8% and that's just a perspective. But the inventory is now pretty good. 3.2 months of inventory compared to three months a year ago. San Antonio, the most affordable city of the four big cities in Texas. Average price house is uh, three, what is that? 360, uh, down 1%. Median price, uh, 290, down a little bit more, uh, 6%. Uh, months of inventory is a little higher than the rest of the state, but uh, sales are up. Still a pretty decent market. 2021, uh, average price uh, up, what is that, 16%, 2022 another 12%, and excuse me, 2023 flat. We're really down down uh, 2%, which is, uh, which is flat. Uh, lease price is flat, lease is up a little bit, uh, 5% year over year. So that is the Texas real estate market and the market drivers. Um, I'll also give you our forecast. Now, again, um, we don't have any, try, we're, we're not trying to persuade you of an opinion, but we're happy to share an opinion. The only thing I know for sure is the future will be different than it is now. Uh, but I'll say again, predicting real estate is not as hard as a lot of other things, right? I have no idea what the stock market is going to do, and I have no idea if anybody really knows, right? I, I don't know what the economy is going to do. But at least in real estate, there's a lot of things we know. I know how many people are having babies. I know how many people are moving here. I know how many houses we have. I know how many houses we're building. I even know how many houses we're going to need over the next year. So we have a pretty good idea of what the supply is and what the demand is. Now, there's a few little variables like interest rates. We're not quite sure what's going to happen with interest rates. We, we think they're probably going to go down a little bit. But this is our pretty conservative uh, forecast. And by the way, the Texas RIAs has been doing a market forecast for 20 years. Every year we do a forecast. And I'm going to tell you, 20 years out of 20 years, we have been just about spot on every year. Not to brag, but it's not that hard to do a forecast. So the forecast is we're kind of at the bottom of the cycle, probably technically bottomed out a quarter ago. It wasn't much of a bottom. People were expecting a correction. They didn't get a correction. The correction was that it leveled out. That was the correction. So if you're holding your breath waiting for a correction, you may be holding your breath for forever. Interest rates are expected to decrease no later than the summer. And if they do, all bets are off because any decrease in interest rates is probably going to get a lot more action in the marketplace and it's certainly going to make things more affordable, which could have a big impact on prices going up. 
Uh, we expect interest rates to drop 1% in 2024. Don't know for sure. That's the consensus. And our conservative forecast is that sales will be up 5% and prices will be up 5% by the end of the year. So that is our consensus. So any questions on this? Was this helpful for you guys? Was this helpful? So um, again, you can make money up markets, down markets, sideways markets. Uh, they're all great. Any questions on this data? Question in the back. Two questions, $5 a question. Six months is the average. 40-year average is six months. So we're in a 3.4 months, 3.2 months, right? It's, it's a seller's market. What is the forecast for months of inventory? We don't have a forecast for months of inventory. I would expect the inventory to probably stay about where it is. It's a pretty strong market. I don't, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but I, I, I can see things pushing up. I can see things pushing down. I would guess we're in a pretty good market. I don't think it's going to get dramatically better. I don't think it's going to get dramatically worse. I would guess it's going to stay about where it is. No, Fort Worth is to Dallas what uh, San Antonio is to Austin. It's kind of Dallas's poor baby brother. Um, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying, everything in Fort Worth is two thirds the price of Dallas. Everything in in San Antonio is two thirds the price of Austin. So there's a little more inventory, a little more affordable, uh, a little slower market. Um, you know. I would say it tracks Texas more than specifically Dallas, but you know they have slightly different industries. They're 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 kind of you know they're two big cities in Texas. Yeah, let's talk. About, and what do you want to know about commercial? What is your question about commercial? Because we also have a whole different group that does commercial. I don't I don't see that. I mean, so so like what what if if we have problems in commercial, what's going to happen? First of all, I want to make it very clear. Commercial is a very broad, broad topic, right? Office buildings, that's just one sliver of commercial, right? There's apartment buildings, there's storage, there's RV parks, there's mobile home parks, right? There's land. I mean, there's so many different types of commercial hospitality, um, you know, and then office building. I think office buildings are toast, okay? So the problem with office buildings, we had COVID, everybody went home. Right? And then the offices kind of move back, but not everybody moved back, right? I don't think they're all coming back. I don't know, okay? But Amazon's putting big box stores out and, and office buildings are losing employees. A lot of people are working remotely. Is that going to change? I don't know. But yeah, the loans are coming due and we have a, a, a surplus of, of office space and that's going to cause some problems in the commercial sector. Now, a couple of things about commercial loans. Um, number one, Residential loans are all the big banks. Commercial loans are small local banks. Okay, yeah, yeah. You don't. When you're going to commercial loan, you you know the state bank of Texas, the the first national bank of Waco. You know, I'd always drive by those banks like, who the heck banks there, right? And the answer is commercial, right? They do all the local commercial lending, right? And I'm exaggerating a little bit, but for the most part, uh, I remember Silicon Valley went bank bad, and 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 everybody's kind of panicking the small banks have a bigger problem than the big banks, right? Uh, and, and they're exposed to that. Commercial loans typically are five-year loans, right? Which means that the loans are coming due. And the interest rates, you know, to, to make things worse, you know, they have to refinance because the loans are coming due and they have to refinance at higher interest. They got less income and more expense. We're going to have some problems in, in the office space thing. Uh, and I think it's just going to work its way through the market, right? But I mean, I don't see how that affects housing. I don't see how that affects storage. Storage is hot. And apartment buildings are pretty hot. 
And most of the com commercial sake, I don't personally do uh, office space, but most of the commercial investing I'm doing is pretty hot. It's doing really well. And, I, you know, other than some of the banks are going to have a problem with their loans they did to that space. I don't, I, don't, I don't see how that connects to Hurricane Harvey. Is that what you're saying? Well, that was a while ago. You know, uh, Hurricane Harvey wiped out 124,000 houses in, uh, in Houston. So it took a lot of inventory off the market, right? And um, that should have, you know, been a boom, believe it or not. Uh, but there were so many up and down forces that went along with it. But I think Harvey worked its way out of the system a while ago. I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I mean, certainly, you know, one thing Harvey did is it proved that houses that are not in flood zones can flood. Okay, and there was a lot of flooding in Houston. Um, but Houston is unique, and Hurricane Harvey was unique. I mean, Hurricane Harvey was a one in 4,000 year event. You know, when a hurricane hits, you always see the same thing. It hits, spins up the coast. Harvey hit and stalled. That doesn't happen. Another front came, it stalled, it dumped 48 inches. Nothing survives that, right? Nothing can survive that. And then if you look at Houston on a map, it's as flat as it can be. In fact, Houston's kind of the drain for about a third of the state, if you think about it. So 48 inches, one in 4,000 year flood, you know, it, it, I don't expect that will ever happen again. And people, the thing about floods is it, it creates stigma, right? You know, when I look at a house in Houston that has flooded, I ask how many times? If it was one time, Harvey, I'm thinking it's never going to happen again. Now, if a house flooded twice, it's going to happen again. Okay, so it's always like a one flood or or more than one flood, and that's a totally different house, in my opinion. But I think most of that's worked its way out of the system. And the funny thing about stigmas like floods, after a while, people forget them, right? They just kind of like, you know, flood, does that ever happen, right? You know, and then it happens again. Oh, it's a flood, right? You know, so stigmas kind of go away. Well, I mean, any loan can be, I'm making a generalization. Commercial loans Residential loans are typically 30-year mortgages, usually by big banks, right? Commercial loans are typically five-year. They could be A, they could be extended. I mean, there's, you know, I'm, I'm making a generalization. But commercial deals are constantly turning over for a lot of different reasons, like a commercial syndication. I do commercial syndications. I raise money, I get a loan from a bank, I buy a property, improve it, and sell it again. When people invest in things, individuals don't want to tie their money up for 30 years. Right? They may be willing to invest for five years. They don't want to invest for 30 years. So these deals are structured right, to turn over and over and over. And that creates continuous opportunity in commercial. But when interest rates go up, right, you have properties where the loans are coming due, the interest rates are going up. If the deal wasn't structured right, the deal can then fail. Now, I will say banks don't want the properties back. So in many cases, banks are extending the loans or doing whatever they have to, or they're putting more cash in with cash calls. I believe a good, a, a good, a well-structured commercial deal should never go bad, although it may go long, right? By going long, I mean, sometimes, you know, five years from now when you're planning to sell, the market's not there. So you have to wait. Okay. But you're still getting income and rent. And if you're thing was structured well, you can just keep paying the mortgage and keep collecting the rent, keep getting a little cash flow until the market kind of settles back and you can get it sold, right? But if a deal goes bad, I think it was not, probably wasn't structured well. For sub-markets of Houston, is that what you asked for? Well, I mean, I, I, I can't name a particular one, but if you're talking about flipping or you're talking about buy and hold, well, go where the people are going. 
right? Go where the people are going. But I would not personally invest, buy and hold in a submarket of any city. If I'm going to buy and hold, I'm going into the inner city. I never want to be in the suburbs. I never want to be in the bedroom communities. I don't want to be in any of those. And the reason is simple. They're still building houses out there. And if you're ever buying and holding anywhere near where they're still building, you're competing with the builder. And it's make versus buy, right? And you're never going to win, right? The values only go up as much as construction costs go up, which is a little, but not a lot. In the inner city, there's no more land to build on. I'm exaggerating a little bit. There's a little land, but not much. You, you, you really can't add a lot of inventory to the inner city because it's all built, right? But people keep wanting to, 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 to move there and people keep having babies. So you have growing demand with no more supply and that's where the properties take off. Now, now in those bedroom communities and suburban areas, flip them all day long. There's tons of money to be flipping out there. I just don't hold in those areas, yeah. Uh, on this data that I showed you, a lot of this was pulled from the Texas A&M School of Real Estate, which has some of the best data in the, in the state. Uh, we also work with some different economists to pull data. And of course, we use data from all the MLSs. We have these heat maps where we've literally pulled every sale of every house in the state of Texas going back over 20 years, and we map it to show where the highest appreciation spots are. And it's no surprise it's in those inner city neighborhoods. Buying a lot, you know, the question is how much, right? And, and, you know, would I buy lots and build in Houston? Absolutely. But how much, right? And it's just like, if you can buy it for X and build a new whatever on it for Y and sell it for Z and Z is much better than, you know, more than X and Y, absolutely, right? So buying inner city lots could be a great idea or a terrible idea, depending on how much you pay for them. Well, you can, that's land banking. And, and, and land banking historically can be quite lucrative, but it's also called an alligator investment. What does that mean? It can bite you. The problem with land, it doesn't generate any income, right? And so people buy land, like, you know, and, and it doesn't generate any income. If you have a loan and you're not getting income, you may have a problem making your loan payment, right? And, or you gotta have some other income to pay the taxes and carrying costs and everything else, right? So, Land can be very lucrative, right? Good land in good areas, but it, it's just, the problem is it doesn't generate any income. And, and, and if you leverage it with debt, right, then you're, you got debt with no income. That, that, can, that can be dangerous. Um, so, and you never know, right? When, when the market's softened, land is hard to sell, right? So it's very illiquid in, in, a, in a soft market. But, but I, I, I do want to say one other thing. I consider myself a land banker. I own a bunch of inner city lots that just happen to have rickety old shacks on them. And I rent out the shack to pay the mortgage on the lot. And that's how I think about it. Multi, two to four prop, two to four units, that's not multifamily, it's residential. Technically, those are all considered single family houses. I, I don't, I don't, I don't have that data. I mean, you know, I, I don't, I don't actually know. I mean, I'm sure that data is easy to find, but like, are you saying, are they, should you build duplexes? Are they building duplexes? I mean, kind of what's the question? I would never buy and hold duplexes or fourplexes, okay? You're always going to get a much better long-term return on investment from single family. Two houses will give you a much better return than one duplex. I don't care where you are. Houses do better than duplexes. Duplexes get a little better cash flow. That's true. Much worse appreciation. Over a period of 10 years where you add up all the cash flow and all the appreciation, Appreciation trumps cash flow 10 to 1. So if you're investing in duplexes and fourplexes, you're leaving most of the money on the table. They just don't appreciate 
like single family houses. So I would never personally buy and hold duplexes. Do I flip them? Yeah, that is commercial. But I'll say something about commercial. I wouldn't buy an apartment building that has less than 50 to 80 doors. And the reason is simple. You have to have like, depending on the, the rent, you gotta have about 80 doors before you can really afford to pay full-time property management, full-time maintenance, right? So if you have less than that, it's probably a job, right? You're probably helping to manage the property yourself. It's work. It's actually less work, right? And more scalable and more lucrative to own something 50, 80 doors or above, right? And, and the people that buy these small apartment buildings, they often find themselves, you know, swinging hammers on weekends and I don't want to do that. I own $30 million worth of houses. I owe $5 million on debt because I've just been buying houses for 20 years and, and tenants paying off the mortgages while the property double, double, double in value. And, and so now I own $30 million and I, and I owe five on 30. So I'm $25 million richer, right, from buying rental properties. I think that's pretty good, right? I mean, it's all relative. But I mean, everything's relative. Like you said, oh, houses here are more expensive. I don't know. I know a lot of people that come here from California, they buy houses, buy one, get one free, right? I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's all relative. And as expensive as you think houses are now, if you could go back 20 years, don't you wish you bought them all? Well, you can't. But as expensive as they are now compared to 20 years ago, 20 years from now, you're going to look at things today and you're going to say, I wish I bought them all. Houses are on sale, okay? And, and, and you're selling them at the future price 20 years ago. You can't go back. You know, when's the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago. When's the second best time to plant a tree? Today. So I would definitely buy and hold real estate long-term, right? As much as you can for as long as possible. Well, my guess is I'm, I'm not here to compare. I'm not, I, I, can, I am an expert at Texas real estate. I'm not an expert at Louisiana real estate, but I'm guessing your property taxes are lower in, in there, correct? Yeah, so you're gonna get a little more cash flow and a little less appreciation. But I'm gonna tell you over time, appreciation trumps cash flow 10 to one. If you look at where the money comes from on a rental property held over a long period of time, if it's in a highly appreciating area, like an inner city area that's growing, over a period of 10 years, you add up all the cash flow, add up all the appreciation, most of the money by a big margin comes from the appreciation. So if your goal is to get wealthy over time, you want a high appreciation property. My portfolio appreciates at about 12% a year over 20 years. Now, I own inner city. The average across the state's about 5.6%. So I'm getting about twice the average. And the reason I'm getting about twice the average is because I don't pick houses using the dartboard method. I'm very deliberate. I buy inner city only in high growth areas where the population is exploding and there's no more land to build on. It's pretty simple. Growing demand, no more supply, properties double. Well, thank you, everybody. Uh, let's take some more questions a little bit later. I do want to get into our next presentation. We went way over than what I expected. I do also want to make a little announcement. Um, we provide market data and training and resources and a network and all sorts of things for Texas real estate investors. One of the things that we do is we provide training 
Uh, we're doing some workshops coming up and we actually provide these for free for you guys. So this might be something that you would be interested in. Uh, and we have a series of workshops coming up. Uh, I'm gonna be teaching these myself, practical, actionable, detailed, step-by-step -step training where we get through all 12 real estate investing strategies. You need to know them all, all 65 marketing methods to find off-market wholesale properties, closes, which are the exact words or scripts we use to close a deal. Uh, practical, actionable, detailed, over 100,000 Texans, successful investors, got started at this workshop, uh, Texans teaching Texans how to invest in Texas. We have animated heat maps to show exactly what neighborhoods to invest in and hold over a period of time. Uh, we have tools that nobody else has. We have proprietary strategies and campaigns and resources that nobody else in the world has. So we have a little tour that we're kicking off to get people started with the new year. And we're doing a three-city tour, uh, Austin, Dallas, and Houston, uh, on the dates shown here on the map. You can come live and in person. Uh, and I promise we're not packed in like sardines. We do have tables, so we're going to have a little more room to spread out. Uh, you can also attend online uh, via Zoom uh, or even do a combination of live and online if that works uh, better for you. So pick the date location that works better for you. I recommend live, but if you can't come live, you can also attend online. And we're doing a special promotion where we're actually going to be doing this for free. We like to kick as many people off at the beginning of the year uh, with free training as possible. You're going to see why we really want our members, the people in this network, to actively be doing stuff because we have a huge network and where people are actually buying and selling stuff, then everybody starts to make money. Uh, we'll hand out a little form a little later uh, that you can sign up and register. Um, for you guys online, you can click on the link in the comments below and get signed up online. So I'll put this back up a little bit later. But before I do that, I want to kind of move on to Texas's largest real estate investor association at TexasStarterKit.com. If you like today's episode, please subscribe, comment, share with other investors, or join us directly at TexasStarterKit.com.